Welcome to Leading for a Legacy. I'm your host, Meredith Schweitzer. In this show, we ask, what makes a cultural nonprofit leader whose staff, board, and the community you serve actually want to follow? Join me as I unpack the leadership styles of some of the most influential museum directors and cultural sector nonprofit leaders across the nation, all to try to understand what it means to lead with your legacy in mind. Wow, it was such a treat to talk with Alice Greenwald. Alice is the current president and CEO at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. She's been with the museum since 2006 and oversaw the building of it from the ground up, or in this case, from seven stories below ground up. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. We talk about what it's been like leading the museum staff, working with the board, And we get into how important it is to have buy-in from the communities you serve, and also the ways that the ongoing pandemic is changing the institution. Be sure to catch our follow-up episode where I run through a quick-fire question round with Alice. And we're totally new at this, so if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and share a review. If you have a question you want us to address over the first season, throw it in the comments and help me make this series as meaningful as possible. So here we go. Here's my interview with Alice Greenwald. Well, hi, Alice. Thank you so much for being part of these conversations. I'm really looking forward to getting into some of this today with you. Let's just go ahead and, you know, kind of get a lay of the land. Um, Knowing that the museum opened in 2014 and the memorial a few years before that in 2011, I'd love for you, just for listeners who maybe haven't been to the memorial or museum, if you could kind of give them a little introduction to it. Oh, I'd be delighted to. And and first of all, thank you for um, inviting me to be interviewed. This is wonderful to speak with you, Meredith. So for those who have not visited the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, it is located at the World Trade Center site. And the memorial is actually an eight acre plaza with 400 trees. So it's a beautiful park, but situated in the actual footprints of where the Twin Towers once stood are two reflecting pools. They are each an acre in size. They are the pretty much the exact size of the uh, floors in the Twin Towers. And there are 30-foot waterfalls, the largest man-made waterfalls in the Western Hemisphere, as far as we know, that fall into the, the pools, the water lands, and then it falls again into a center void. And you can't see where the water goes. It's an endless sense of loss. Around the waterfalls and the pools um, arrayed on the parapets, which are bronze, are inscribed uh, the names of the 2,983 victims of 9-11, including the six people killed in the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. So the memorial, it's contemplative. It's about the voids created through loss, It is a testament to the individuality of the nearly 3,000 people who died, and it is a place to pay one's respects. And so the memorial is really about the power of absence and, and if you will, the presence of absence (laughs) uh, in our lives. And the memorial is actually the roof of the museum. And the museum uh, is actually 
at the foundation level of the original World Trade Center site. And when you go into the museum pavilion, it looks like a relatively small building, but that visible facade at ground level is really belying the actual immense scale of the museum, which is almost a full eight acres underground and seven stories below ground. And you enter into a space that is an urban archaeological site. You're within the original foundational structure, which is visible uh, in certain places of the World Trade Center buildings. It is a place of commemoration, and it's a history museum all wrapped in one. And one experiences by this journey down uh, to the foundation level, what we call bedrock, you experience the you know, the scale of what happened and the intense emotionality and memory and history entwined and complementing one another as we tell the story of 9-11 and what happened that day, what led up to it and what came after. We commemorate the victims and tell you about them and their lives. We celebrate them for the lives they lived, not the deaths they died. And there's also excavation. So you actually can understand what it took for two enormous towers, uh, skyscrapers, which were at one time the tallest skyscrapers in the world, what it took to hold them up because you're actually seeing the foundational elements. So it's, it's really a fascinating, visceral experience that takes you on a journey into the past, but you come out with a sense of hope. Yeah, I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of the uh, the historical exhibition is that immense scale versus the individual humanity of the stories that are told. I, I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. There's this beautiful tension between monumentality. I mean, the size of some of the remnants of the buildings, right. the steel, you know, certainly the slurry wall, the last column, the the vehicles, the, the first response vehicles, which are there, everything is large. But then right. there's this tremendous intimacy the intimate stories of human beings, people just like you and me. And I think it's that sense of intimacy and personal narrative, which brings you inside the story. Right. Speaking of, you know, individuals, um, I'm hoping that you and I can kind of get into a little bit about your background. Uh, What kind of got you to the memorial in the first place? I know you had about two decades worth of work um, at the Holocaust Museum. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how that experience informed the really early days of planning the Memorial Museum, and also maybe how those experiences really impacted how you saw yourself as a leader stepping into the role as a director. I think the first answer is something that I've thought about a lot, which is that if someone had told me when I was in graduate school that you know I would spend the bulk of my professional career working on museums dedicated to the worst human atrocities, in history, you know, I would have thought they were crazy. You know, that was certainly not my career path uh, or my aspiration. But having entered the museum field, first in the world of Jewish museums, and then along the line, I was offered a job to help with the early planning for what became the permanent exhibit at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. You know, that put me on a on a path where I became intimately familiar, deeply familiar with the challenges of narrative storytelling in a museum dedicated to immense loss of life, genocide, difficult subject matter, in some cases, explicitly violent imagery. It was an education that I got willy-nilly, you know, by being on that project. 
that informed the way I thought about memorial museums, which are a specific kind of museum. And I began, I think, to intellectually understand the requirements of taking on very difficult subject matter in highly public spaces with a public history orientation, how you frame history that is so difficult to encounter. So I did spend almost 20 years with the Holocaust Museum, first as a consultant and later as the associate director of the museum. And I had the extraordinary opportunity to be on a world-class project from almost its inception, certainly the planning phases, through the building and implementation of those plans, to the opening of the museum, to the operations of the museum in its um, early years. You know, that was a trajectory of experience that I never could have gotten anywhere else that provided almost the perfect preparation for the challenge of creating the 9-11 Memorial Museum. So when the opportunity did come forward. First of all, I didn't want to leave the job in D.C. I I passionately love the project at the Holocaust Museum. I loved my colleagues. I found my work incredibly gratifying. And the thought of going to New York and um, taking on a, a job that was so fraught at that moment in time. This was late fall of 2005 when they invited me to um, to apply. And that project had gone through already in just a few years, a lot of public scrutiny. And, you know, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? You know, putting, throwing myself into such a, a mess politically. And, and what am I going to achieve? I can continue doing good work here at the Holocaust Museum. And, you know, I went up for an interview and I've never forgotten it. The conversation I had with the people who were interviewing me, and these were people from the Memorial Foundation at the time, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, several members of the board, a couple of consultants. The conversations were incredibly stimulating. People were asking Mm -hmm. all the right questions about how we would take this complex story so soon after an event of this magnitude and convert it into an accessible and powerful museum experience. So, um, and had you thought about that at all at that point, or was oh, it were I they had, putting you on the spot in the way that you were like, I don't know? <laughs> no, I had thought about it at length. I just oh. didn't, I didn't expect the people I was speaking to to be on my wavelength. Let me put it that way. I, oh, I, wow. I, you know, I didn't think they would be as open to what I was suggesting, which was a museum that would be a storytelling museum that would be like the Holocaust Museum, about the human experience of a historical event, as opposed to a historian's interpretation of a historical event. They really responded in a way that made me feel, maybe this is something I need to do. Maybe this is how I can contribute in ways that I have the experience, you know, to draw upon. Yeah, that's so fascinating, too, because that is the the trajectory of history museum exhibitions now, it, with no question, this personal storytelling foot first. And to to think that, that you would be walking into a room feeling hesitant about that approach is sort of interesting to me. Yeah, well, I didn't know what to expect, to, to be honest right. with you. Right. And, um, you know, I had some very... I would say strong, but deeply intuitive feelings about how one goes about presenting in public spaces really difficult traumatic history, that you don't just put the information up, you don't just take 
images that are there because they're there and use them, that you need to constantly think about the emotional impact on the visitor, you know, what emotions you're going to be provoking. And it has to be carefully constructed. And and we needed to look at every decision that we would make about what to include through the lens of, is this going to re-traumatize the public? How will family members of victims, of loved ones who who were killed in this horrific event, uh, how would they respond? Uh, It wasn't enough just to convey what happened. It had to be done in a way that was constantly being referential to the commemorative aspect of the institution. That importance of storytelling. For me, I know when I was at the museum that 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 the idea of storytelling was so ingrained in us. And I used to tell people, you know, they'd ask, you know, how are you, how do you work at the 9-11 Memorial Museum? It's so emotional. How do you, you know, handle that? And and I would always tell people, you know, I, I have a great job because I get to hear why people loved each other all day, every day. And or for the memorial uh, exhibition within the museum, that was definitely the case. And so there that that level of kind of personal life storytelling was just a natural factor of the everyday job, but I'm not sure that that was always the case for other departments. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as the team sort of grew from, you know, one one office worth of people to several, you know, offices and, and a whole floor, talk to us about how you communicated that importance of storytelling to your staff. How do you refocus things to storytelling within your leadership style? Well, first of all, you know, the Holocaust Museum in Washington was probably one of the first storytelling museums in the world. And and the, the man who came to really make it happen, Sheikha Weinberg, who was the director of the Holocaust Museum, his background was in theater and he really understood mm. the imperative of telling history as a story. He also really liked film for that reason. And instead of having a conventional, if you will, curator manage the exhibition, we certainly had curators and they were fabulous, but he brought in a film director, Martin Smith, who had done the World at War series for the BBC to basically be the overall project manager and, and, you know, the visionary of how this story would be visualized and visceral and told. And so I cut my teeth, if you will, on the idea that if you're going to be effective in communicating history, you have to do it as a storyteller. By the time the Holocaust Museum opened in 1993, there was 50 years of history that had been written. And when we started work on the 9-11 Museum project in 2006, the spring of 2006, it was barely five years, not even five years since the attack. There wasn't a bibliography of historical works for us to go to. What we had to go to were the people who witnessed the event, the documentary news footage, media, contemporary uh, correspondences on um, chat rooms um, and email. So it was all kind of first person observation, first person recollection. And it was narrative. It was a story that was constantly being framed. So all of the material we had to draw from that wasn't artifactual, if you will, wasn't the remnants of the buildings or the vehicles that were at the site were the stories that people told. And so we framed our museum as a storytelling experience, understanding that for you know a, a long period of time, people would be coming into the museum with their own stories, 
you know, 9-11 was witnessed by an estimated 2 billion people. And in 2001, 2 billion people was a third of the world's population. So imagine a third of the world's population watching in real time or seeing in repeated broadcasts throughout that same day, the very same images, the very same content, if you will, processing it almost globally, almost Mm -hmm. simultaneously. It was an unprecedented experience of collective global witness. So we knew we had to provide a museum space that would not only present the stories of witnesses, but allow our visitors to tell their stories. And so we did that. We built that into the museum as well. Now, coming up on nearly 20 years since 9-11, there's a generation of people who didn't witness 9-11, who were born after the attacks or were so young when they occurred, they don't have a memory of them. That generation too has to feel that the story being told relates to them. And the one way you do that is not to didactically say, this is what happened on 9-11. It's to bring them inside the story. And that's what we did. Is there an example from the development of of maybe the historical exhibition specifically where you felt like you had to reinforce that for the team members that that something could speak to the visceral lived experience only for one generation and that you needed to have the vision beyond that generation for visitors, you know, who are coming now or who are coming in 20 years? I would have to say that while we were aware that that would be the case, In the early years of planning the museum, it was hard to imagine people who didn't have the 9-11 story. I mean, everyone you met for years after 9-11, they would ask where you worked. And immediately before you even, you know, finished saying the 9-11 Memorial Museum, they would start telling you their 9-11 story. I mean, this happens to this day. I would say that it was only just a few years ago that we began to recognize that we were transitioning from memory to history. And that was driven home by the number of students coming in for whom 9-11 was something they had internalized through their parents' experience, not their own. And it was meaningful enough and a major personal memory for their parents. They were conscious of it having significance, but they didn't quite know why. And so it was at that point, I would say that was maybe five years ago, you know, where we began to say, wow, you know, there's a generation and they're responding to the museum because it is so personal and it, you can see yourself in the story, even if you didn't live the story. And that was one of our goals. You needed to see yourself in that story. It was a human story. But they were seeing themselves in the story at a remove that was not the same as people who had lived it themselves. And so a lot of our student workshops and our teacher training now is oriented to engaging students at all levels from about third grade up in the content. So interesting. How often do you get together with your education staff to really understand that personally? Or do you go to some of these workshops yourself? Like how involved are you as the director? Because it's such a big organization in seeing that transformation happen. Like how does that function? I moved from being the director of the museum to being the president and CEO three years ago. And while I was museum director, obviously, I had a great deal of proximity to all of the programming that was going on in education, exhibitions and collections. That was my purview. And, you know, shifting into the CEO position, I've had to, sadly for me, because I love the content so much, but 
you know, I've had to be a little more removed from the day to day. That said, you know, I do observe some of the workshops. And for example, we just had our um, anniversary in the schools webinar, um, which is all based on personal storytelling. We do this on the day of the anniversary. It is for students around the world. People register, teachers register, schools register. And there is about a, um, I want to say about a half an hour long video, which tells four or five personal narratives of people who experienced 9-11 one way or another. One happened to have been a a young woman who was born on September 11, 2001. Mm -hmm. And so every year her birthday falls on the anniversary of 9-11. And she's developed her own way of trying to make sense of the significance of her birth date uh, in her life. So she was terrific because it was peer to peer. You know, a young person speaking to students is so powerful. But I watched the webinar. I mean, I, you know, I saw it in, in various stages along the way, but I spent time on the day of the anniversary watching the film. And much of what we do is that storytelling, that personal narrative approach goes all the way through everything we do. It's not just the exhibitions. It's really the way we teach. It's very effective because it is personal. We've been talking about the importance of storytelling and how that translates really across all all of the areas of the museum from curating to education to just working together as a staff. And I want to get a little bit beyond that and talk about um, communities. There's a trend that we're seeing in museums of embracing the communities that you're representing in an exhibition or working more directly with the makers of the materials that you're um, incorporating into exhibits, that was always at the forefront of planning for the museum, knowing that what was going to be represented, because it was so close to the history, that there were all of these communities, all of these different types of constituents from family members to survivors to first responders to, you know, you name it, there's just kind of an infinite number of communities that we could call out. I'm curious how you see the role of working with communities and and maybe even more specifically than that, you know, what do you do as a leader when you have conflicting requests or conflicting perspectives in in the development of something from these communities that are maybe equally valuable in their their views. Well, that was the case I walked into. You know, uh, coming into uh, work on this museum project to build something from scratch. I I was moving into an arena where there were multiple constituents, people who felt this story was their story and who had very strong opinions about what the museum could or should be. And their opinions weren't necessarily complimentary, even though all of them were valid. And we recognized very early on that before we could even begin to conceptualize what this museum might contain or how we would shape the storyline, that the very first thing we had to do was build a sense of trust with the constituencies. And and this was, as you've just said, the family members of victims, the survivors of the attacks, the um, people who lived in lower Manhattan, whose apartments were filled with dust, debris, and flaming material, students in the neighborhood. We had landmark preservationists because the site 
even though it wasn't yet 50 years old, was eligible for landmark status because of the event that took place there, the, the historical significance of the event. We had, you know, political constituents who were concerned about what was going to be presented. The first response community, I mean, this went on and on and on and on. And what we realized early on was not only that we had to build trust with the communities, but that if we spoke to each of these constituencies in isolation, we would only be hearing one point of view and that it would be really important for all of the constituents to hear all of the perspectives for several reasons. One, which is they would recognize that the other perspectives were legitimate, even if they disagreed with them because they were coming from a very real place. And it would also convey that, you know, with all of these different approaches and perspectives and preferences for what was priority in the storytelling, that somebody would have to make a decision and that somebody would have to be me and my team. So it it would build both trust and a willingness for us to take on the job of bringing all of those threads of narrative together in a way that would privilege none over the other, but give everybody the opportunity to be heard. And I think that was one of the most important things we did. But, you know, before we started putting pen to paper, we started that first summer in, in 2006, having what we called the Museum Planning Conversation Series. And the first year we had like 90 people in the room wow. and they were all, you know, representatives of these various groups. And, you know, our team was there and our designers were there. And, you know, we started with a series of lectures, actually, and conversations, literally, with people who were, some were American historians, thinking about, you know, how do you frame 9-11 in the American historical narrative? We had a professor from NYU who is a specialist in museums and performance studies, and she um, spoke to all of us, people who never think about this kind of thing. I think about it all the time, but, you know, most people in their lives aren't thinking about what museums do and how they do it. And, you know, she was saying uh, something very close to my heart, which is that museums are like theater. The difference is in a theater, you sit in the audience and the actors move on the stage in front of you telling their story. In a museum, the actors are the artifacts and they're static and you move as the story evolves. But you still need the arc of a theatrical storyline. It has to present the issue, rise to a a crescendo, and then there's a denouement. You know, it has to follow that pattern. And we took all of this in. We had a trauma psychologist come and talk to us about what to avoid and where the the challenges were going to be. And for a museum that was planning to make use of a tremendous amount of oral history and first-person recordings and, you know, in real-time recordings, he actually made the point that the most emotion-laden artifact is the timber of the human voice. Yeah, And we had to be extremely judicious in how we used it, when we used it, and so forth. We had people who were specialists in child psychology and early childhood education talking to us about what the threshold was age-wise for the historical exhibition, when children would be able to process this kind of difficult history and not themselves be traumatized by it. You know, so we really, we brought... All of these people from different walks of life, different points of entry into the story uh, and into the history, we brought them into a common conversation about these things. And it helped build that trust, but it also helped all of us have a common language as we began to talk about what the museum would be. 
And that group in one form or another, obviously some people peeled off, some new people came on, but it went on for eight years, that conversation. And these people felt very invested in what we were producing. Uh, So much so that they were very honest when they didn't like, we would bring you know, uh, design uh, studies and elevations to the meetings and say, you know, this is what we're thinking of doing with this topic. And they would be sometimes brutally honest if they didn't like it, you know, but that was helpful because if it didn't work for them, it wasn't going to work for the general public either. It was like a litmus test. So this was enormously helpful. And, you know, recently, about a year ago, we dedicated a beautiful new component of the memorial called the Glade, the Memorial Glade, which is dedicated to the far too many thousands upon thousands of people, mostly first responders, but not exclusively. Some were downtown residents and workers who were exposed to toxic dust resulting from the collapses of the Twin Towers and have subsequently um, become you know, mortally ill with 9-11 related illnesses. And we just felt this was a part of the 9-11 story we could not have anticipated in 2005, but it was something that had to be attended to and honor needed to be paid at this memorial to those lives that were lost as a consequence of 9-11, not directly on the day of 9-11 from the attacks, but from the selflessness and dedication they put into being there during the rescue and recovery efforts, or the people who came back to lower Manhattan to their apartments to rebuild their lives and their communities and breathed in this dust that was all over their clothing left in their closets. You know, in creating the Glade, which was a sensitive project. We had to bring back the original architects because it needed to feel of a piece with the rest of the memorial. It couldn't feel like something just added onto it. We also realized that the community needed to have a voice in what we were designing. And so we rebooted. It wasn't exactly the same group. It was a different group, but we rebooted these community conversations and they went on through the process of developing the design and then building the Glade. So we learned that to do a project like this, you must engage the community. Yeah. It's so interesting, the idea of bringing that group back, because it really speaks to the importance of trust just across the board, across staff and people that you work with and your visitors and everything that that, that that's so crucial to being successful is is really understanding trust. And I think that work of working with a group over years, I mean, that's that sort of speaks to trust in a way that, you know, a single consultation just doesn't quite do. <laughs> that's that's right. Right. You all are in an interesting position that you've been so in the national spotlight for so many years. And then New York in particular with the pandemic has had a national and, and international stage in a way that the rest of the country, I think, uh, has not quite experienced. Um, and so I'd love to hear from you a little bit about just kind of your experience with the the, the path that has, that has happened at the museum following uh I guess it would have been mid-March that yep. uh, Governor Cuomo sort of put a pause on all of the businesses, which I assume included the museum at that point. What were your steps as the CEO uh, communicating to your team what was going to happen and kind of the the next steps and both how you chose to communicate to staff and how you chose to communicate to your board? Right. Well, you know, well before March 13th, which was the day we closed the Memorial and Museum, pretty much ahead of Governor Cuomo's mandate, but right in line with other museums in the city, 
I would say starting around the third week in February, we were already conscious of this, you know, brewing crisis. And I immediately set up an internal, we called it the health task force, which was comprised of our executive managers, the uh, communications director, our HR director, and our head of security. We would meet every day to talk about how we were handling this, what decisions would have to be made, how to communicate with our staff. And we immediately sent out a number of communications that had to do with just guidance, links to the CDC website, the uh, New York City Department of Health website, um, so that our staff would be well informed. But, you know, as we got closer to the middle of March and things began to get to reach a, a peak of crisis in the city, and everybody was quite conscious of it, but one didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Uh, we began to hear from some of our floor staff, you know, our visitor services staff and volunteers who worked in visitor services, that they were beginning to get concerned about their own safety in the museum. And this was a, a real red flag for me. You can't run an operation if your staff does not feel safe. I began a conversation at that point with members of my chairman's office, so at the board level, to try to determine what steps we should take. And one of the initial steps, I think we allowed managers to let us know who on their staff could work effectively from home. And if, you know, if they needed to, we could allow people to work from home. Obviously, that would not apply to floor staff, right, who have to be in the museum if the museum is open. By the time we got to that 13th of March, I had already reached a point uh, in my own mind where I knew we had to close that I did not feel we could responsibly ask our staff to travel into the city on public transportation, that we could not protect them with greeting the public. So it was it was a confusing and difficult time, but in my own mind, there was no alternative. Uh, by the 13th of March, we were tracking other museums. I was in daily communication with my um, chairman and his, his office, and we made a decision on the afternoon of the 13th that we would close. And then you know, immediately communications went out to the rest of the board, to the staff, you know, indicating how we would work going forward, that we would be a remote operations staff for the foreseeable future, that uh, we continued our daily check-ins. And for a period of time, I was asking uh, managers to send me reports on what their staff was doing. But very quickly, we, like so many organizations, we transitioned into a remote operation. We had in March about two and a half months to plan one of our major commemorations, which is the uh, May 30th anniversary of the end of recovery efforts at Ground Zero. Uh, This would have been the 18th anniversary of, of that date. We pretty much understood within a very short period of time that it was unlikely we would be hosting that anytime soon on the memorial. So we had to figure out how to do a virtual commemoration. Uh, Everything changed. And very quickly, I would also say we transitioned from, you know, our live public programs to virtual public programs. We got that going. We developed a whole series of virtual online resources, including something I'm very proud of, a series of uh, Instagram TV video vignettes uh, recorded by various staff members and volunteers that made the link between the response to COVID and the response to 9-11. And they're called Stories of Hope. They are absolutely wonderful. They run about two minutes each, but they are terrific because again, it's storytelling. It's each of the, the people telling the story, talking about how they see the outpouring of compassion and support and 
uh, appreciation and gratitude for, for instance, people on the front lines of COVID response and how that resonates with what we saw on 9-11 and the aftermath in the days after 9-11 when people would stand on the West Side Highway with thank you signs to the first responders. So there's a lot of commonality and, and people pick different stories and they're just wonderful. So, you know, there's an awful lot going on. And, and now that we have reopened the memorial and the museum, we've had to make all kinds of accommodations. Masks are mandatory. Social distancing is mandatory. We've reopened the museum at the within the guidelines the state has imposed a, a maximum 25% capacity. And we have put in one-way directional pathway signs so that people are not facing one another as they go through the museum. Now, before COVID, the museum was a non-directed, explore-as-you-will experience. You could go anywhere at Bedrock and do it in any sequence. And now there is a direction because that is part of the way to minimize close contact with others. We no longer give tours because you can't do that unless it's a single family group. It's not considered um, safe. So there have been a lot of accommodations and realizing that we had limited capacity, that there are people who are not traveling right now, that not everyone would be able to come to the museum. Challenges provide opportunities for ingenuity and innovation. And we have now created live virtual tours, which are a revenue source like admissions, but you can be home on your laptop or, you know, your iPhone. You can plug into a live tour of the memorial or the museum or a student workshop, and you will be guided by one of our interpretive guides. So a staff member, museum educator guides you through. The camera work is terrific. You're seeing the entire memorial and the surrounding buildings or the museum and what's inside. It's extremely immediate. And you can engage directly in asking questions of your guide. So it's in real time, it's live, there's give and take, there's Q&A, but you're getting that experience even if you can't physically be there. So, you know, while we've had to make accommodations, we've also come up with new and more wonderful ways of experiencing the content. I love that example. I really hope that people take advantage of that and go and register for one of the live tours because for me there's so there's so much value in the physical place of the Memorial Museum that that's probably about as close as you're going to get if you can't make it to New York yourself. And so I, I I hope people take advantage of that. And I think that really speaks to a, a good point of looking for how to further an organization's mission under a crisis rather than sort of just hunkering down and saying we're going to weather this it's it speaks to sort of how are we going to rise out of out of this uh, circumstance that that maybe it's going to make us a better institution on the other side of it too exactly so. no that's exactly we see it as an opportunity Right, right. Well, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much, Alice, for spending this time with us. I really appreciate it. And I hope that um, people got real value out of hearing from you and your personal experiences in making uh, what I think is one of the most meaningful places in the world of, of, of remembering a, a, a something that's very difficult to address in a way that leaves you looking at the world in a better way. So um, thank you, Merida. Thank you. 
Well, that does it for episode one of Leading for a Legacy. I hope you'll join us next week where we'll have our quick fire round with Alice Greenwald. And stay tuned for a whole season of conversations with leading cultural nonprofit experts. My next guest is going to be Nat Shidley, who is the head of an organization called Revolutionary Spaces in Boston. It's the combination of two historic sites. In that conversation, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to cultivate and empower boards, and how to work through a complicated transition in an organization. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe and rate us or leave a comment. I hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>